0: Welcome to Anything But Silent from the British Library with me, Cleo Laskarin. Over the past few weeks, the stories we've covered in this podcast have taken us from places like the foothills of the Himalayas to street marches in New York City, even the confines of Her Majesty's Prison Service here in the UK. But in exploring these projects, I've also come to realize that libraries themselves are incredibly well-traveled. Whether it's the breadth of what they collect or the ways they reach into their communities, Libraries are definitely out there, and being out there is what I want to talk about in this episode. Today we'll be heading to infinity and beyond to find out why a library in space might just save the future of humanity. And we'll also be traveling to all corners of the UK to hear why the British Library has been analyzing the way we talk. But first I want to start with a type of traveling library you might all be a little more familiar with.
1: My working day starts fairly early in the morning. i woken up about 5.30, and uh, get up, get uh, breakfast, get packed lunch, and set off to go to the van. This morning, I'm going on a ferry. Now, the ferry can be a bit choppy, and the weather in Orkney can be a bit um, unpredictable, would be probably a good one. But in all the years I've done it, I haven't been stuck over an island very often, but I did get stuck in the... I was actually stuck there for two days because it became quite a severe gale and there was power cuts and various things so it was quite an experience to be there. (music) I went to to Rousey for a day and uh, the snow came and it came and it came, it built up to be quite a lot, went back to the pier in Rousey and they realised that we were not going to get back home. So the boat went, instead of going back to the Tingwall Ferry, we went the whole way back to Kirkwall to get us home into Kirkwall. And there was a real depth of snow at that time. And when I arrived back in the library that morning, the faces of the staff in the library really wondered how on earth I'd got back home, because there had been buses stuck in the roads. And it was really thanks to the crewmen of that boat who was quite keen to get us home. And that's really part of what being on an island and being part of a, a community like that really Uh, Works quite well, and and, uh, everybody sort of works together to do the best. So that was an interesting take. You're listening to the voice of Betty
0: Stanger, a mobile library driver for Orkney Library and Archive off the beautiful northeastern coast of Scotland. As Betty describes, living and working in Orkney has its quirks, and over the past 25 years, she's been crossing choppy and at times treacherous seas to provide books to Orkney's
1: inhabited islands. The route itself takes two months to complete a full rotation. Certainly uh, within the islands, I, you feel you've sort of become part of lots of their lives. There's people that used to stay in the islands. I used to stay uh, overnight in some of the islands and, and you really got to know folk quite well and their families and what was going on. So that was really lovely when folks may be had problems or illnesses. You feel you're part of that. When they have happy times, weddings, babies being born, you're part of that as well. So it's, it's really um, more than just the library service. It's, it's very much part of caring, I suppose, looking for folk and just having a relationship with folk.
2: Right, well, Orkney, if you come to visit Orkney at any time, you'll notice how green it is. It's also got quite a variety of landscapes for you. You've got seascapes, you've got a, a wee bit of hill. Bit, one of My mine. name is Karen Walker, and I'm the Principal Librarian at the Orkney Library and Archive. I've been here in one capacity or another for more than 30 years, so I've been here a long time. I've lived in Orkney nearly all my life with a few excursions to the Outer Hebrides for a short time as a child and a year in Australia when I was there with my husband on a teacher exchange programme. So I do love the place and I wouldn't live anywhere else. Yeah, There are are almost 70 islands but they're not all inhabited. Some of the Outer Isles as we call them, the mobile has to go on a ferry for an hour and a half to reach the island. And then they'll take various fixed stops and they try and pick places like community centres or maybe the church or the school, council housing, just to make sure that they're in a, a good centre population
0: for the people on the island. Even in the age of the internet, e-books and tablets, Orkney Mobile Library remains as important as ever to its users.
3: I live quite a distance from the hall of the library parks and uh, I have to drive there, obviously because I couldn't walk because I've got a disabled badge and a walking stick. And uh, I don't get into the library because I'm afraid the steps are a bit too steep for me. So I can't really choose my own books, but there's a plus with that, because the folk in the library, in the van, choose books for me. It introduces me to the new authors. They choose something that I wouldn't choose but because the library van comes once every two months and I do a lot of reading, I persevere even with the ones that I don't particularly fancy and I finish every book.
0: This is Isabel Clouston. She and her family have been using the mobile library since its conception.
3: Oh, if there was no library van service I I don't like to think about it. If the library van didn't come, it would be awful. I mean, what even a day late this time because of the doing be show. But there was once that I think the van was, um, there was something wrong with it. It was in the garage. And uh, Simon, who actually lives in there and is the same as me, arrived at the house one morning with a box of books to me. Which was just super, I mean, that's how good they are.
0: It's really heartwarming to hear how much these interactions mean to local people. And in areas the bookmobile can't navigate, the library also provides a book box service via courier to its most remote users, a free scheme that's been running for over 60 years. But the team aren't stopping there. More recently, this small island library has captured attention from people all across the world. Yes, our Twitter feed.
2: That's been a runaway success, I would have to say. I mean, I think we're running at something like 66,000 followers now. And throughout that, it's the humour, the
0: topicality, and being able to respond quickly. It was through their Twitter account that the general public affectionately christened the mobile library with the nickname McBookface, A hashtag that's been emblazoned on the big blue bus ever since. Orkney's online notoriety has also been bolstered by a friendly rivalry with their northern neighbors at Shetland Library, which has led to many amusing bouts of online roasting.
2: Yes, we we do have a little bit of banter with our northerly neighbor Shetland, and um, I think that can sometimes attract people. For instance, we've had JK Rowling, who appeared at one of our little book groups. She just appeared one Saturday, no one was expecting
0: her. That was through our Twitter feed. Orkney Library jokingly promised J.K. Rowling cake if she were to come along to an event. She obliged. And J.K. Rowling, I think, had
2: got in on the act there and uh, it ended up with us getting a successful visit, whereas Shetland didn't, I'm afraid.
0: And like all good rivals would, Orkney Library celebrated this win by posting a collage of the author to Shetland Library's Twitter with the caption, in your face. to Orkney Library and Archive for letting us join them on the road and across the sea. I think they're such a great example of a small library with a big voice, finding ways to get out there and make an impact. Make sure you follow them on Twitter. While researching for the show, we've discovered a huge variety of mobile libraries from around the world. Libraries balanced on the back of donkeys, camels, or wheeled from town to town on bikes and tuk-tuks. But at the British Library, we're also lucky to experience people traveling from all corners into us to visit our collection. Over the years, this has given us a great opportunity to collect the unique words and phrases they bring with them. Inspired by the wonderful accents of Orkney, I went to meet Johnny Robinson, lead curator of spoken English at the British Library to learn more.
4: Jog, which means something is rubbish. The the term I was thinking of uh, from Nottingham, was we say if it's cold, we say it's a bit derby. We say
0: puggle, and it means to poke. Um, a word me and my friends use a lot is peng.
2: Well, the apples is woodpeckers and emits
0: is ants. Okay, um, my word is scundered, Um, when I was a teenager that was a popular phrase um, to mean that you have been very embarrassed or mortified and to use it in a sentence, um, that boy I fancied came into the room and my pants fell down, I was scundered.
3: You're having a bubble mate, I think that came from in East End of London where they spoke Cockney
2: some couple of years ago. Plodge, which is a noun. To
0: put your feet into water, I usually sea water. Hi, Danny. Uh, can you tell us what we've just been listening to?
4: Yeah, so they're great examples from our sound archive spoken English collections uh, from a recently created collection where members of the public contributed words that they felt were special in their variety of English. Just a couple of examples of the fantastic set of recordings we've got of, of dialects and accents around the British Isles. Well, I think I've I've been fascinated by accents and dialects all my life. We moved around a little bit when I was growing up. My father's side of the family from Yorkshire, my mother's side from the black country. We lived in both those locations. And I think like many of us, I'm just fascinated by the fact that In the English-speaking world, we all speak relatively the same language, but we instantly notice differences in individual words, pronunciations, and other features. So it's been a personal interest for many years. I was a languages teacher for a number of years, and I joined the library about 15 years ago to work on a project putting accent recordings on the web.
0: Now, listeners might have realized that I have a bit of an accent. Um, I'm originally from Canada, and so I actually find that regional words are often quite tricky for me.
4: Absolutely, I think we all encounter that, don't we, when British people go to the United States or to Australia and there's often a lot of fun around different words for different things. We've actually, in in the collection for the clips that we heard earlier, we've got some wonderful examples of Canadian expressions, so perhaps I could test you on a couple of Canadian ones. So, uh, we have... Poutine or poutine, although the speaker who contributed it in, insisted it was pronounced poutine, where, they from, where they're Where they from.
0: Yeah, that would be Quebecois. It's um, a delicious treat made of French fries with gravy and cheese curds. And if the cheese curds are really fresh, they're a bit squeaky.
4: Perfectly described. That's pretty much how the, the, the contributor described it. And I'll try one last one then. So this one's from New Brunswick. I don't okay. know whether you, you know New Brunswick well, but the, a patty pan.
0: Oh, I have no idea what that is.
4: It's a, uh, what I would call a fairy cake, but lots of younger British speakers and American speakers call it a cupcake.
0: Ah, you foiled me.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so we've got all that fantastic diversity, British English, varieties of English around the world is captured in a number of our collections. The word kutch. I suppose it isn't really English it's more of a Welsh word but it's used so often in the South Wales valleys by people that only speak English and it really means a bit more than a hug it conveys the idea of a Welsh woman holding a baby in a shawl and uh, holding it so close to her and it's a beautiful word it's got a l- lovely feeling to it and it's a lot stronger than uh, a hug or an embrace and so to give someone a cutch a big cutch is to really hold them close and uh, to really have an affection in you
0: that's so sweet
4: so yeah, absolutely <laughs> and uh, you know beautifully described. I mean that think that's one of the things about this collection. the way people clearly are so enthusiastic about their own definitions of these words captures kind of how important words and language are to us as our sense of identity. and that obviously is a Welsh word, it is a Welsh word Kutch. it has a number of other meanings actually as well. it can mean the cupboard under the stairs, but in its meaning of, a hug or an embrace for all speakers in Wales, as that speaker explained, even if they're not Welsh speakers themselves, it's kind of a a sense of their Welshness that they use this word.
0: Yeah, that's really sweet.
4: It's tunda, which means cold. Uh, I think it's from the Punjabi language. Tunda, uh, I particularly like, because that was an example of a speaker with a very clearly West Midlands accent, but they were using a Punjabi word. Now, that's ah. an example of kind of English refreshing itself from recent uh, migration. And so British Asian terms are coming into English dialects, if you like. So he pronounced the word tunda, which is a Punjabi word for cold, but with a very, very black country accent.
0: That's pretty cool. I like that.
4: I know. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great how those kind of uh, stories of language emerge in the voices of the speakers.
0: Very cool. In contrast, are local accents and dialects dying out because of access to cheap travel or the homogeneity of the internet?
4: I think there's a popular misconception that that's happening, and and, and certainly there's lots of evidence over several decades of particularly the media uh, expressing that view. But actually what I think most linguists would, would acknowledge is that language changes. It's constantly changing. So if we listen to our sound archives, a recording from, say, 50 years ago, from a particular location and compare it with a recording now. Yes, there will be, in many cases, quite obvious contrasts, but nonetheless... In the british isles we we all know that if we move from say london to birmingham and then from birmingham to manchester and then from manchester to scotland and and so on and so forth we begin to hear changes in the voices we hear around us and that that i think will always be the case that's true of all languages because we now communicate across greater distances and we're coming into contact with people um, much more frequently of different kinds of voices and we all move about much more then i think that process has accelerated in the last mm. 50 years but nonetheless You can still tell, and our archives show that there are still distinct dialects and accents across the whole of the UK.
0: The clips we've been playing come from the British Library's Evolving English Word Bank, an archive of crowdsourced voices that we captured from visitors during an exhibition about the English language back in 2010. The British Library's Sound Archive is bursting with voices from throughout the UK, The Lost and The Found. This includes the Survey of English Dialects, which was a nationwide study of regional speech carried out in the 1950s by the University of Leeds and kindly shared with us.
1: Well, first I got a clean bowl, then I put my flour in and I put me, uh, yeast to, uh, my yeasty rise in some warm water with a bit of sugar to make it rise better, and I rub some lard into my flour. Salt,
4: any idea where she might be I'm from or what she's talking about
0: she's talking about cooking. she's talking about a recipe
4: she but is. it really, really took me bread. a minute to
0: figure it Wait,
1: out. Real well, well you don't get good bread Well then pour it Any it thoughts I where
4: she might be from
1: with the
0: clout, no
4: North south length, east west
1: Let's um, go
0: it had gotten risen west doors, wrong like, I was hoping you go north
4: she's from <laughs> uh, she's from a village called Wellick uh, which is uh, just outside Hull uh, in the east uh, in East Yorkshire um, she's one of about 300 wonderful recordings of voices which in most case, uh, cases, even to British audiences are now no longer terribly familiar right. uh, we have got a few examples of speakers uh, that sound a little like her in our modern archives, but she uses a lot of features that are, are perhaps not as common now in that area but what's interesting I think is um, she uses a number of pronunciations that we might not recognise, so she talks about fleur for flour, yeah. so she uses an oo sound for what for me is an ow sound and that's yeah. quite rare now in that part of Yorkshire but you still hear it in places like Newcastle-upon-Tyne they say toon for town, you hear it in lots of Scottish yeah. accents but not in that area but also she uses pronunciations that are still very common in that area so one of the other ingredients for bread she talks about is lard which she pronounces as lad and that's still very much the pronunciation right. in large <laughs> parts of Yorkshire and the north of England for words like car park. Um, yeah.
0: The way she said the word well was very...
4: Wheel. Wheel, yeah. Yeah, It rises wheel. uh, And she used uh, uh, a quantified and she said you need to need it real wheel. Now, (laughs) for most British English audiences, that use of real is kind of sounds North American, real good, real neat. Yeah. Most people tend to think British English speakers say really good, really neat. But in fact there's lots of evidence of real in that sense real well real good being mm-hmm. used in dialects even modern dialects in the north of england right. and elsewhere so these recordings are much richer than reading a description of let's say yorkshire dialect or devon dialect because the minute you hear a voice you're transported to a place and a time yeah. much more instantly than than a, a written description
0: yeah it's also nice to hear people talk about food <laughs>
1: oh, <absolutely>. <laughs> <laughs> then it should be ready but if the big laughs, why then they'd have another few minutes. And today there were big lofts so without an hour and 20 minutes. And then our taxi took
0: out... Thanks to Johnny Robinson, our accents and dialects expert and lead curator of Spoken English at the British Library. At the British Library, we pride ourselves on collecting social histories like these for future generations to learn from. But what if the library and its collections disappeared? Or if human society as we know it was to fall under threat. In our final story, we're heading to space.
5: My name is Nova Spivak. I am a lunar librarian. The original idea for the ARC mission started when I was about eight years old, one night when I had a dream. In that dream, I saw a future time on on Earth where an environmental crisis caused the climate to become toxic. As a result, civilization as we know it came to an end. A few people survived and they decided that It was their responsibility to record whatever knowledge they had for future generations and write it down because they were the last generation that had lived in the society before the climate crisis. I was one of those people and that's what we did in the dream. Fast forward to later in life, in around 2014, I started thinking about whether or not it was possible to put the Wikipedia on the moon. The story actually of the first library in space begins uh, actually in the UK. I went to find a technology that could store data for a long time and found Dr. Peter Kazanski at Uh, University of Southampton in the optoelectronics laboratory there, and he discovered and invented a method for writing data into quartz crystals using a laser. We decided to do a test of this and made some test disks using his crystals. And we decided to put the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy on these disks in case we ever ran into Elon Musk because we knew he liked these books. So as luck would have it, after a year or two of these crystals sitting on my desk or being in my pocket, I happened to be watching one day on Twitter when Elon Musk started tweeting that he was going to send his Tesla to space. Pretty much at that moment, I tweeted back to him. We've stored your favorite books on this crystal that lasts for millions of years. Would you take us with you? And he agreed. We had this conversation and I got him to commit to taking it. And we managed to get the first library in space launched. We were watching on the day of the launch. We weren't sure if we were gonna be included. And we were watching, you know, the control room video from uh, SpaceX and during the launch sequence, they did a little segment on the arcs and how they were taking one of them in the glove compartment as an Easter egg, and we just freaked out. I mean, we were jumping up and down. Everybody was shouting. We were just completely super excited, and that was just you know one of the great moments that I can remember. So the Lunar Library was a much more ambitious project, 30 million pages of content curated over many years. It's organized into uh, actually different collections, just like a a real library. Uh, And we have many collections. Some of the collections are public and contain uh, large public data sets like the Wikipedia. And then there are private collections, which uh, were curated and given to us by others, uh, and those include a library of 30,000 books which uh, cover every subject that a university library would typically cover, as well as collections of papers, documents. It includes a large collection of literature and poetry from around the world. Um, there's some music in there. We included high quality images of major artworks. So there's quite a bit of art, literature, And culture, we actually felt that culture would be more interesting to people in the distant future. Uh, If they can get to the moon to retrieve this, they probably have the same science and probably are not that interested in our science other than as a curiosity. But our culture and history will be something they'll be quite interested in and won't have. This project, uh, we etched into nickel and it did, using a nanotechnology. And after many years of trying, we convinced the Israeli mission to give us a ride and produced it and got onto their spacecraft. On the day of landing, we were, of course, everybody in the team watching with bated breath, uh, hoping for a successful landing. We knew the risks. Landing on the moon, of course, is something that only a few nations have ever achieved. The landing part suddenly went astray when they had a sensor failure, um, which caused a main engine cutoff during the landing sequence, of course, which is not good. So as a result, the spacecraft came in at a very low angle and impacted the surface of the moon at high speed. We were crushed, shattered, just like the spacecraft. We had done so much work to get to that point. I mean, really, years of work, all our time, all our money, everything had gone into this. After we kind of got over the initial shock, We started to run some calculations to try to figure out where is the crash site, because nobody knew exactly, and what might have happened, and could we have potentially survived. After all of the calculations, we pulled together an international team of experts, including a treasure hunter and physicists and all kinds of people. It turns out that it's very likely, in fact, that we are not only fully intact, but certainly we didn't get damaged significantly in the crash So as we started to think more positively, uh, we came up with the phrase, we've either achieved the first library on the moon or the first archaeological ruins of early human attempts to build a library on the moon. So when you look at the moon, realize now that there's a 30 million page library there looking back at you. Who did we build these libraries for and why why are we doing this well we're doing it in case there's anybody to find these we think there's a reasonably good chance that there will be otherwise it wouldn't make sense to even attempt this and there are different classes of potential recipients we have people on earth from our civilization who uh, may be the survivors of some serious Cataclysm on Earth in the next, let's call it hundreds of years. That's one potential audience. Another potential audience is a pre industrial civilization that emerges in millions of years, long after our civilization is wiped out, or a space age civilization at that time. And then a more advanced civilization than us that's somehow uh, either emerged somewhere else in our solar system or arrived here from somewhere else. That's another possibility. We had to make a few assumptions um, in designing this. One of which is whoever it is, they've got to have eyes. They should have brains that are at least functionally equivalent to ours, if not better. They need to have language they have to exist or live in the scale that we live in, which is you know, meters. If they were giants or microbe-sized beings, it would be hard for them to read these disks. And we also have to make sure that they don't view these disks as tasty treats because we need them to actually analyze them, not eat them. With these constraints in mind, we designed a system that could teach any intelligent being with eyes how to understand our core concepts and ultimately our languages and then get the rest of the information off the disk. We're also hoping to put these on the surface of Earth in something we call the Earth Library. That would enable us to put copies of this in deep caves on every continent so that uh, in millions of years, whoever is here If anyone's here, um, they'll be able to rediscover this. And then of course, we will provide microscopes on Earth because we have room for it in these caves. They'd be able to actually see and um, make sense of the information that we give them. Maybe the major benefit is millions of years from now, but there's also benefit today inspiring people and making them think about the fragility of human civilization, but also the kind of cool idea of backing it up all over the solar system and making a treasure hunt. I think it's just an inspiring project that helps people think on a larger scale, both in in space and time. And I hope that we can bring that out uh, more so that there's more benefit to people today and in the near future as well. I'm a sort of a library nerd. When I was... In elementary school, I volunteered at the local library in our town. I curated a a certain section of the library and advised kids on which books to read when they'd come into the library. There's actually an old photo of me as a volunteer in the library as a a kid, faithfully manning my section of the library and being the librarian for all the books on UFOs and, and strange phenomena, which was my favorite part of the library at the time. I never imagined that I would be a librarian, but a lunar librarian—I'll take—I'll take that. First lunar librarian—that makes being a librarian pretty damn sexy. I think uh, that little kid would think it was very cool and inspiring, uh, and he'd probably want to be a lunar librarian too.
0: Thanks to Nova Spivak, a librarian who's truly out of this world. You can find out more about ARC Mission Foundation, including plans for future missions, even a library on Mars, and others here on Earth at arcmission.org. That's ARC spelled A-R-C-H. As out there as a library on the moon may sound, what I love about all the stories we've heard today is the way libraries are constantly looking for new ways to reach out to their communities and inspire. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get in touch by emailing podcast at bl.uk or on social media at British Library. Remember, the British Library, like many libraries around the world, is free and is open to everyone. We're based at St. Pancras in London and Boston Spa in Yorkshire and at bl.uk, where you can explore our collection from wherever you are. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another mini-episode where we invite guest voices to talk about the literary moments that have made them and library books they've struggled to take back. Those episodes are titled Joining the Library, and our last was with the Welsh author Joe Dunthorne, who picked Politics by Adam Thirlwell. Go back and check it out. Anything But Silent is a Pixie production for the British Library. Until next time, from me, Cleo Laskerin, thanks for listening.